kind of a lot of fun. Two weeks ago we talked about wine. Last week we talked about art. <clears throat> Today we get to talk about Jesus with a whip chasing people around a marketplace. And then next week we talk about John 3.16. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? So hope you're having as much fun as I am. Um, I, I sat down next to someone this morning that, that reminded me that we have a really cool church. She meant that like in a good way, not like hip, but like really cool, just a lot of fun. And um, there's nowhere I'd rather be. There's nowhere I'd rather work. And so I hope, I hope you guys just sense that. Uh, that there's a lot of people here. You'll turn to John uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we're going to read about Jesus clearing the temple, and this is one of those stories about Jesus that shows up in all four Gospels, and and it's kind of in the folklore of of our minds in terms of the things that Jesus did, the images that we have, and and so uh, here's what we read, I think I put a different translation up here than what I've got, so I'll read it off the board. But it says this, uh, after this, he went down to uh, Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So what's really going on here? It's the Passover time. It's the once a year time when the most uh, amount of tourists or pilgrims would venture to, to Jerusalem the city would just absolutely explode or swell beyond its borders, and you'd have camps, uh, tent camps kind of set up around the edges of Jerusalem. So I've got a map of kind of the ancient world there. I thought we'd go a little um, laser pointer crazy this morning, just because it's fun. Um, So you'd have people traveling by land this way, and then Jews from all over the Roman Empire if they were uh, in all of these kind of other countries, they'd come by boat to Caesarea Philippi here, uh, which is now modern-day Tel Aviv, and then they would travel about three days' journey over to Jerusalem. This is where Pilate would have been headquartered, um, and he would have been the, the prefect over all of Judea here. And during the Passover, he and extra guards, Roman soldiers, would come down to Jerusalem um, because... It was a hotbed of religious fervor and so many people that they would have to kind of go down there to monitor things. So the next slide is actually a model of the temple in Jerusalem. So this is like the Israeli Museum Society kind of has this scaled down model uh, there. And so this is uh, what's called Herod's Temple or the second temple. The first temple was uh, the one Solomon built. And when the, the Israelites were taken into captivity, that was destroyed and then in about uh, 515, this te- the temple, the second temple was rebuilt. You see that in the book of Ezra. It was nothing like the glory of the former temple of Solomon. It was a lot less in grandeur. And then Herod, King Herod, around uh, 20 or 19 BC, began this building project where he rebuilt that temple completely. They still call it the second temple, even though it's re- completely different because the sacrifices never stopped um, that whole time. The sacrifices continued through, even though they took off the old temple and put the new one. The Jews of that day were so suspicious of Herod that they made him bring all of the marble, quarried marble there, that was going to be assembled into the new temple before they were willing to take down the other temple. They had to, to kind of see that it was going to happen first before they went into this. So he started this in 20 BC, and reports would say that it had only been done for about six years when this was all destroyed by the Romans much later. So it took about 80 years to build this whole thing. I mean, we, we, any building, like a huge building modern day, maybe two years to complete, right? And back in in ancient times, building projects could last two or three generations. And so this whole project had been going for some 40 years when Jesus comes on the scene and wasn't completely done yet. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So Jesus comes into the temple area for the Passover, 
And because there's so many people, uh, they've turned this area, um, these areas, into a marketplace where they're selling items that can be used uh, for sacrifice. Now that's something okay. It says in Scripture that if you're far away, that you come, you bring your money, and you purchase something, an unblemished pigeon or, or, or lamb, etc., and you get what you need for sacrifice, and then you go and you offer it at the altar. Okay? So the whole idea of being able to not have to bring a sheep from a thousand miles away uh, to, to give a sacrifice, but you could actually bring your money and then turn it into something to sacrifice is in Scripture. That, that's just helpful. Does that make sense? But the practice of turning this area into that kind of a marketplace was rather new uh, right before Jesus' time. It actually could have been because of the way the construction was going and this being completed that they began to do that. And the principle, I think, is pretty easy. Uh, I grew up skiing. And you begin to uh, learn real quickly when you're driving into ski towns. And we know this living in Bend, right? When you drive into ski towns, there's ski shops kind of all over the place. But as you get closer to the mountains, there's, there's more ski shops. And those ones are cooler. It doesn't matter if they're cooler or not. You just think they're cooler because they're closer to the mountain. They must be better. Like the diehards, the guys that really know how to tune skis and really know what they're talking about. And, and fit the bill and all this other stuff, those, those must be the guys working at these ski shops because they're closer to the mountain. And the ones further away are like, it's the high school kid, doesn't know what he's doing, but you could probably get a really good deal, but it's not as valuable. Does that make sense? Um, the proximity is a, a business principle. And so when you're talking about the, the thousands and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem with money to change it so that they can go in and offer sacrifice, being able to be right here is of advantage to be able to sell things for people to use in giving their sacrifices. Does that make sense? So it's business principle, and, and they begin to set up marketplace there. Not only are they selling those kinds of things, but they're also changing money, and that's just a real simple one. If you flew into London or Rome or anywhere in Europe right now, what's the first thing you're going to do when you kind of get into the airport or, or right outside the airport. You're going to go up to um, a money exchange little booth. And you're going to change your American dollars into euros or, or whatever. Does that, I mean, it just makes sense. So in this, in this period, they would be exchanging Roman money into the money that they would have used here in Jerusalem. So there's just money changers. So this is all going on in the temple. And Jesus comes ahead of time. So if we look at the other Gospels... There's probably just one time that Jesus does this. And the other three Gospels put it or locate it uh, right at the end of his life when he's coming in the last time. And so the week before uh, he dies, you see the triumphal entry where he's coming riding on a donkey. Does that make sense? You know, Good Friday, I, I think, you know, a week ahead of time or uh, whatever it is, Palm Sunday, whatever the one is that's a week ahead of time. Okay. And what would happen is the Jews would come and they would get here a week ahead of time because they needed to begin to ritually purify themselves through a series of, of baths, through a series of, of different things that would slowly bring themselves kind of into this objective state of, of purity because purity was kind of this layered thing in, in that culture and uh, baths and water was a huge part of it. Other things was a huge part of it. And you would slowly purify yourself so that by the time you came to, to do your sacrifice right before the Passover, that you would be in a state of purity. So the, the stairs would have been coming from over here. Actually, I think we have another picture. I think it'll show up more. The stairs, the, the grand staircase would have been over here on the, um, the south end. And you would have come up through here. And in this area, there would have been all sorts of baths kind of cut out. Um, hold out what would have held water where you're ritually kind of purifying or washing yourself. Okay, does that make sense? And then you would have come into this area. This is where the Sanhedrin probably met, the, the ruling religious authorities. Um, and then you would have come in here when the, the apostles later would teach on the temple steps. It would have been in this area. Uh, the Fortress Antonia is here where all the Roman soldiers would have been garrisoned with easy access to be able to put out any kind of uprising because where would it have happened? It would have happened at the temple. And so when Paul later in the book of Acts 
uh, there's this big thing that starts to happen, and they're like grabbing them, and all of a sudden the Roman soldiers show up on the scene and say, hey, what's going on? They would have just come out of the Fortress Antonia and just write down and, and figured out what was going on. So this is kind of the temple thing, and Jesus would have got here with his family and his kind of clan and his kind of community a week earlier because that's what you did, and you began to ritually purify yourself, okay? Well, Jesus goes into this temple, and just think of how crammed this would have been. I mean, uh, the mall on, uh, during Christmas time, okay? I mean, just it, it's not just your basic uh, week in Jerusalem. This is Passover week, and this whole area would have been a huge bazaar and just, just packed with people and money changers. And, I mean, it's clicking, and literally thousands and thousands of sacrifices just going on one right after the other, okay? Animal sacrifices and, and whatnot. And so there's just this kind of chaotic scene going on, and Jesus comes in there, and he sees it. And then he sits down either in there, or he goes out somewhere else and sits down, and he, he braids together a whip, and then he goes in, and he just, he just unleashes. Just Jesus on fire. And he goes crazy and starts... Uh, overturning money tables and driving people out. And so there's no way that Jesus could have done that to this whole temple area, um, especially without Roman soldiers coming in and changing the story completely. Um, he probably came in and really made a ruckus and a disturbance here. And then you, you see him uh, getting into a fight with the religious authorities, and they're basically asking for a sign. And he begins to teach on the steps, and he says... You see this temple? Tear it down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's called the sign of Jonah. You see it twice in the book of Matthew, where Jesus likens himself to Jonah, just being in the belly of the whale for three days. And he kind of prophesies, and he says, this temple that's supposed to be the house of of God, the the holy house, the word temple wasn't around in the Old Testament. It's a a Latin derivative. So in the Old Testament, when it talks about this temple, it it doesn't use the word temple. It uses the phrase, the holy house, okay? And so this holy household, right, you tear it down. It was, it was to be the footstool of God. That's the concept in the, in the Hebrew and then the Jewish mind is this is the footstool of God where heaven and earth kind of intersect. And, and then God is present there and, and in a unique way we're able to connect with him. And Jesus says, tear this down and in three days I'll rebuild it. In three days I'll rebuild it. And you're just like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're crazy. Um, this has taken 40-something years, not even done yet. What do you mean rebuild it in three days? And what Jesus is saying is like, man, you don't get it. This thing here is, is the old, and it's all wrong in some sense too. And you guys are all wrong, you leading religious authorities. And you tear that down, and I'm going to replace it with the new covenant. The new intersection, the new holy house, the new body, um, myself. I'm where people are going to come and be connected to God. And so he begins to prophesy that way. So it's this fascinating story going on. But there's a... I want to... My wife told me that I didn't have this to where anyone could see it last time. So she also tells me I dress funny. Um, But but I, I think this is one of those passages that we can really kind of explain something else that goes on that we do in churches. I was, I was at a dinner thing last night. I used to do, um, when I was a college pastor, I used to do these things called skeptics balls. And what it, what it was was just bringing a bunch of people into the room and I'd just sit on a stool and just field any question about religion, politics, psychology, sociology, church history, theology, philosophy. Anything's fair game. If I don't know an answer, no big deal. Just move on. But it was just an opportunity for people to, to voice the questions that they've always had and never had a forum to just get it out. It was, it was a blast, a ton of fun. And so I did one of those things like a year ago in someone's house, and they brought in just a bunch of friends. And, and through that, we ended up doing one last night. And so there's 20-something people and had dinner and then just had this kind of skeptics ball format thing. It was just a ton of fun. And this one gal asked a question. And she says, man, I just have a really hard time because I've been to a lot of churches and it just seems like they grab passages of the Bible and just make stuff up that has nothing to do with what it's talking about. 
And it was just a really interesting point. And I was just like, yeah, that happens a lot, you know. And, and so I kind of explained, you know, it, it's ancient literature. So there's, there's the text. And um, it's in context for a, a different age and a different setting. And, and, I, and I get that. It's pretty easy to see. In the process, what's called the, the hermeneutical bridge or how you interpret, is you go from the text to the timeless We're going to do a show and tell one Sunday, and you guys are going to come up and have to smell this pen because it's, uh, it cuts right through the coffee. Um, so you go from the text to the timeless principles. What is, what is here that's not for that time and that age necessarily, but that's kind of an eternal principle, right? And then you bridge from that to today with application, I'll just say that. How's that? Um, application. Now, here's what we, we can do in churches, and I think this is a great um, illustration of this. We can go to text and just leave it there. And that's kind of the Sunday school, in a negative way, Sunday school kind of idea. I, when I was a youth pastor, I had a bunch of kids that grew up in Christian homes um, and they knew all the answers. It didn't matter what it was. If I just asked a question, they knew all the answers. But they absolutely could not reason their way through anything. There was zero wisdom, zero mature, maturity, and no sense of really understanding what Scripture said about anything. And these, uh, a bunch of these guys just went off the deep end in high school. Okay? They, just knew, they just knew the story. Jesus did this, and this is when he did it, and this is how he did it. And they just know the text, and that's it. Okay. Then there's times when we just jump to application and do really silly stuff too. So this passage here is one of those great ones where people are like, yeah, Jesus like sat down and he, he premeditated this whole thing and, and he wove together this whip and then he went ballistic and, and Jesus isn't a sissy. And Jesus is a man and like he can just flip over tables and, you know, separating people from their money is no easy thing. Jesus went crazy and, you know, and that's what's right. That's what righteous anger is. Righteous anger is cool. And so I'm going to be righteous anger, you know, because I have anger issues. So I, I'm going to be cool like Jesus and just be able to vent my anger at stuff. And so it's like, um, so what do you vent righteous anger on? Well, unrighteous stuff. Well, what's unrighteous stuff? The stuff I'm angry with. And, you know, do you see the circle there? I mean, there's, there's no real understanding of what's going on. It's just, I'm going to just be really ticked off. And, and the stuff I'm ticked off at is the stuff I should be ticked off at. And we just self-justify something without any real understanding of what's going on. Okay? We just jump to application and say, be like Jesus, uh, go ballistic. I mean, you know, go out to the book table and start throwing it over and stuff today, right? Um, so I think this, is a, this passage is a great illustration of, of where we can either just camp on the text and just know data that has no power to it, or we can jump to application like this woman was talking about that really has no connection with what's really going on. It's just like, how do you get that from this and stuff like that? But what we got to do is we have to, we have to bridge from the text, see what's really going on and why, and then try and apply it. And so what I want to do is I want to take you to Mark and just get a little bit more context um, in Mark's telling of this story. So we have it on the screen, but it's Mark 11. And this is a, a piece of it that Mark adds, and he says, and as he taught them, so Jesus kind of comes out of the fury, and he's on the temple steps, and he taught there, and he probably did it over multiple days. And this is when the Jews really began to just burn and try and want to kill him, it, it says in some of these other um, gospel tellings of the story that Jesus has really you know, riled them, them up. You know, he, he played with the cage and really fired these people up. And then there he is for multiple days in a row, and they're thinking to themselves, how do we get rid of this guy? Okay? Um, and the fact that he caused a public disturbance becomes a part of that and how they end up using that. But so as Jesus is teaching, he says this, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
But you instead, okay, I mean, this is what it's supposed to be, but contra to that, opposite from that, you've made it a den of robbers. And so he's implying something here, and he's basically saying that uh, some of the dealings going on in that temple are not purely motivated. It's, it's not, I'm helping you get a sacrifice because you're a poor pilgrim from lands far, far away, and let me serve you. What he's saying is that some of what's going on here is just age-old business. I'm going to extort you because you need the sacrifice, and I'm the guy that's got it, and I can just make my prices go up. There, there was a, there's a furniture store in town. It's really interesting. I'm not going to name it. The owner probably goes to Antioch, and I'll be in real, real trouble. Um, uh, but a furniture store in town is going out of business. My wife went there two weeks ago um, because there's a chair she really liked, okay? And it was six ninety nine, okay? On sale for 30%, six ninety nine, okay? Um, and then they shut down and the, the, the kind of clearinghouse people come in and they're going to open it back up for this grand kind of inventory reduction. We're out of business and like move it, move it out kind of stuff. So she, she gets up real early with Kim, Tamara does, and she goes to this store thinking about this chair. She goes in, same chair, is now marked $1,200 original price, on sale for 60% off, and it's the same, it's essentially the exact same price that it's always been, right? And she, my wife really hates injustice, like she's got this justice thing going. She was just so, I mean, she was just so bothered by this, because she felt like it was just so dishonest and manipulative, right? Because it, it is. Um, but, I mean, she just gets riled up that way and says, you're just treating people in, in a very bad way and, and your sense of honesty and integrity is out the window because you're only after maximizing your own gain, even at the cost of, of being honest or true. Okay? So Jesus is coming in and, and his impression that we kind of read here is that at least a part of what's going on is, is that this is not really trying to be honest and true to help these pilgrims, but there's, there's a lot of side dealing going on or, or unequal scales where there's just a high percentage rate being taken out in the money changing and, and uh, maybe some of these animals that are supposed to be perfect without blemish. I mean, how can you come up with that high a volume of perfect animals? I can just see the businessmen now. You know, let's just lower our standards of quality. What's the big deal? They're going to die anyways. <laughs> um. But Jesus is like, no, that you're completely, you don't have the right motives here. And there's a lot of reasons why Jesus could have gone ballistic. Uh, the fact that this is Herod's grand temple, and Herod is not a godly guy, and he's basically doing it for his own grandeur. It's one of the biggest building projects in the whole um, uh, first century B.C. there. One of the grandest building projects. He's trying to leave a legacy. And he's making a name off of the temple of God. And that could have really bothered Jesus. Okay, The fact that the Romans appoint the, the chief priest, the high priest. And so that it, it's like this highly politicized kind of religious ruling elite. The religious leaders are very politically connected in. That could have driven uh, Jesus crazy. There's all these facets of it that could have driven him crazy. But one of them would be Jesus coming in and just saying, man, the dealing's going on here. Um, I, I just can't believe that's happening here in the house of God. And so uh, you've turned it into a den of robbers, this house of prayer for all nations. Now, when Jesus says, is it not written, what he's doing is he's talking about Isaiah 56. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 56. I've got it on the screen, 42. Isaiah 56, and we could pick it up earlier, but I'll just pick it up in verse 6. This is what um, is being prophesied. It says this, and foreigners, this this is like one of those good ones. Man, someday when everything is made right, this this is the grand vision of what I want. Okay, this is God kind of saying, this is the picture. He says, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship Him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And it goes on, the sovereign Lord declares... He who gathers the exiles of Israel 
I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And, and so what you see God saying is, I have this vision for all people to be gathered to myself. And, and this, this is the place, right? This is my holy house, the footstool where I am, okay? And so all people are supposed to be able to come. Not just Jews, but even more beyond that, I will gather them. So if we go back to this picture of, of the temple here, this court where the, the marketplace, Jesus is all angry because of the marketplace going on, this courtyard is actually what was provided in Scripture to be the court of the Gentiles. It's the court of the Gentiles. And then there's the court of the women and the men and then the, high pri- the, the priests in here and um, all this stuff. And so there's, there's these different places, but this is the court of the Gentiles. Okay? Now, the first thing you can do with our American mind is say, well, why is there a difference? Why are we making differences? We hate differences in America. And so what we'll immediately say is, how come the women go here and the men go there and they can't go to the same place? And it's a very American way, and I, I'm not going to try and answer that question. Um, but here's the unique thing. Like, if you, I was talking to Mike Saba, who went to Israel this summer. And by the way, if you like this kind of archaeology stuff, he just started a, a Bible school this morning, or a Bible school, a Sunday school class this morning on archaeology in the Bible. And so if you want to come, at, I think it's at 8.30 on Sunday mornings in one of these rooms. Um, uh, he's doing that, and you'll learn a ton. So if you guys want to do that, just find me or find Mike Saba, join that Sunday school class. But he was there this summer, and he actually asked one of these rabbis. And the, the Jewish perspective on this is coming from a totally different paradigm. And what their perspective is, is, I mean, you've got doors all along these sides, and then one door here and one door here. But the Jewish perspective is, hey, the unique thing about the temple was that there was a place for everybody to be able to connect with God. Nobody was excluded. Everybody was included. There's no person or gender. There's even a place for lepers to go, okay? There's nobody who's excluded from being able to come and, and connect with God, pray with God, be there with God where he's connecting with people. And so the unique mindset here is nobody gets excluded. There's a place for everyone. And here's where the Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and connect with God. And it turns into this flea market. And Jesus comes in and he goes ballistic. He goes ballistic. So when we're doing the timeless principles, there's two here. The first one is the purpose. So of the timeless principles, the first one is the purpose. It's to be where people connect with God. It's a house of prayer. That's the purpose of this place. God wants to connect with people, all people. The second one is the scope. So Jesus comes in, goes ballistic, because instead of it being a house of prayer, it's um, chaos, and people are manipulating all sorts of weird things are going on. Now, how does that apply to our lives today? I think it applies in a lot of ways. Um, prayer is something that, that is, ought to be near and dear to Christians, because that's where we build the relationship with God. Uh, the number one commandment Jesus gave was to love God. How are you going to love God if there's no connection, no communication? Okay? So what happens here where religion is supposed to support people, come behind them, motivate them, and equip them to be able to connect with God, religion in this sense has done what it can often do, and it's gotten in between people and connecting with God. Where it becomes at worst something manipulative that takes them away, at best it becomes a distraction. Does that make sense? Okay. At worst, it becomes a money-making venture, and, and we can even see that today. At best, it's just plain a distraction. So it's interesting. I was working at a summer camp um, when I was in college, and it was in the mountains up above uh, Los Angeles, Big Bear. And we had uh, some 11- and 12-year-old inner-city kids that came up one week. It was really interesting. These kids had never gotten out of L.A. And if you know L.A., there's light pollution and you can't see the stars, right? So they come up into the mountains. It's uh, over 5,000 feet up. And we've got these 11 and uh, 12-year-old uh, 12 12 kids. 
And what we do there as the counselors is we would take the bed mats and we would sneak out in the middle of the night and, and just kind of camp on a hill or, or whatever. Now, sneak is kind of a, it means different things because we would actually schedule it with the other counselors. Hey, who's got Tuesday night? Who's got Thursday night? But the kids thought it was like completely like sneaking. Don't tell anyone it's a secret, you know, because it's more fun for them that way. There's no sneaking about it. Um, but we'd go, we'd go lay out these mats on a hill where there's nothing uh, obstructing your view. And the stars in, in Big Bear were just unbelievable. I remember this one kid one night, and it drove me crazy because he kept me up the whole night. Uh, he literally laid there awake till four in the morning, counting uh, the falling stars, the shooting stars. He'd never seen that before, okay? Um, because light pollution had gotten in between him and being able to see the heavens like that. And I think what religion can often do, even with right motivations, is just get in between people and God and just begin to confuse and obscure and, and get in the way. Uh, I was asked to do some consulting for a, a, a nonprofit um, not too, too long ago. This nonprofit exists to help people get into the Bible or read their Bibles and things like that. And they're, I was trying to consult with them on their strategy for doing that. And there's, you know, I basically came back and I was like, I think you guys are completely out of sync with, with what you should be doing. Their strategy was to have all of these tools, this tool and that tool and this tool and this tool. And, and if, because their study said if people will connect with scripture a certain number of times a week, right, then they're going to change. And so let's just figure out how to get them to connect with scripture by all these tools. And kind of the way I looked at that was simply like this, that if we can just give people enough Nike gear and a cool headband and a cool, like, iPod to listen to, they're going to work out so much better. And it just doesn't work like that. We all know that when you go outfit yourself to working out, that really has nothing to do with actually getting in there and working out and making it a meaningful experience in that gym. And so with this company, I was just like, you got it all wrong. You got to get behind people and try and figure out a way to motivate them to truly get free from the distractions and connect with God. If you think of all the times in Scripture where this looks the most pure, you think of Moses on top of a mountain with God. You think of David out at night with the sheep, and he's connecting with God and writing the Psalms. You think about Elijah running out into the middle of the desert, and God waits and waits and waits till he's not freaking out anymore, and then God talks to Elijah. Or you see Jesus getting on top of a hill with simplicity and quiet, Um, and connecting with God. And sometimes the tools and all the little things that we can do to supposedly help people actually just make it more confusing or difficult. And so Jesus comes into this temple, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer, and people are supposed to connect with God. And man, it's just not sinking that way. It's chaos. Jesus is like, no. Because this is, this is cutting at the, at the heart of the number one thing, people connecting with God and God being able to speak to people as they hear. And he goes ballistic. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. Um, so we have to understand that the things we do need to be on this side of people, encouraging, lifting them up, supporting them, equipping them, not becoming things that obscure or distract and I'm not even going to go into the manipulative side. It's really a fascinating thing. Do you know who owns this Bible made by Zondervan? Ultimately, HarperCollins, a completely secular publishing company that owns Zondervan, that owns the rights to my NIV Bible. Is, is, I mean, so there's a whole lot of things where I'm just like, man, there's some really weird things going on in America with the whole money train. You know, I mean, non-Christian companies owning Christian things and their whole business plan is not necessarily to help people connect with God. It's, it's how to translate this into sales. Um, anyways, we won't go there. <clears throat> I just went there. Um, the, the purpose is prayer. Okay? The scope is everybody. And I think this is the big one for us. Uh, the scope is Everybody. They'd crowded out the Gentiles who were supposed to have an opportunity to be able to come and connect with God. And why did they crowd them out? Um, They crowded them out because it was easy. They crowded them out because who's going to raise an objection? No one, 
on the board, you know, the, the, the board of directors of the temple, so to speak, is going to be like, man, we really need to care about the Gentiles. You know, let's not do this. There's, there's no voice for the Gentiles. They're the outsider. They're the voiceless. I mean, they don't get a say in anything. Like, they're not in any of the discussions or any, any of the backroom things. They're not an insider. They're not there. They're not a part of the establishment. And so it's just real easy to say, hey, let's facilitate the real people that are here to worship God. These people really aren't even here. Half of them look confused when they come in, maybe like they're spectators. They're not the serious people. Let's take the insiders, the church folk, and let's build it around them. And it doesn't matter about the other people. Um, they don't have a voice anyways. And it becomes real easy to kind of plan it that way. And we end up doing, and this is the horrible thing that can happen with religion, is we as religious leaders can do the very thing that religious leaders were charged to be against. Religious leaders were supposed to be against oppression. To stick up for the oppressed. If anyone was going to see it and stick up for it, it was the religious leaders. Hey, the kings or the politicians, they're oppressing people. They're denying people that don't have a voice or they're they're the minority. They're denying them their rights. And the religious leaders should see that and say, all people are valuable. And I'm going to come to the aid of the oppressed and stick up for that person. And what happens in religion is the funny thing is it can actually get turned around to where the religious leaders are the ones oppressing. You don't really matter, you Gentile, you outsider, you one that really are not a part of my constituency. doesn't matter if I make you happy or not. And slowly over time, I just don't hear you. And, and what begins to happen is that outsider gets denied their God-given rights to be able to come and try and connect with God and to learn more. And so the church authority structure can actually begin to oppress the outsider, the voiceless. And so Jesus comes in, and Jesus was always about the outsider and the one that didn't have a voice. And he comes in, and he's like probably looking around out in the camps at all of these ragtag people, the type of people that followed him, that, that are really lost in the system. They're misfits. They don't, they don't know where they belong. And, and these are the people, and Jesus is passionate about these people, and he loves these people. And he comes into the temple, and here's supposed to be this courtyard where those people can come and pray. And he comes in, and it's absolute chaos as the insiders are doing their business. Jesus goes ballistic. Um, how does that apply? Do we ever do that? Ignore kind of the outsider, the voiceless people? Do we sometimes get so comfortable in our religious environments that we begin to think more and more about our own felt needs and what would make us comfortable than we really do looking towards the back and saying, hey, if if um, the guy from down the street or the guy from my work or if you know, someone in my family came in, I really would want them to be able to, to connect and to be able to find a, a safe place where they could hopefully hear from God and pray. I mean, do we care more about our own insider felt need stuff or do we care more about the outsider and speaking up for that person? Because that person is completely new and, and and doesn't have any kind of power or influence. They don't even know anybody. They couldn't affect change if they wanted to affect change. It's really fascinating. Um, no, but we're all on different ends of a spectrum. I only have one piece of paper, I think. So, oh, I got another one. I got one. I don't. I don't know if I do or not. Do I? There's tape on this. Anyways, um, <laughs> it's Kip's fault. Um, Seriously, if we were to map everyone in this room out, okay, we're going to map your, 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 the way you're wired, your preferences. Some people are going to be over here with missions or justice or, or uh, orphans and widows. Some people in this room, what you really, I cut you, you're going to bleed discipleship or Bible education. Great stuff, okay? Some people, if I cut you, you're going to bleed community. Small groups, man, we should, more small groups and get everybody together for potlucks and potluck every day of the week, right? And then some people over here, you know, you're going to bleed like service. I just want to encourage people. I just want to, we should do more service things and gifts of mercy. And that's just the way you're hardwired. And 
we, we all would map out differently, right? If you average all this together, where does it go? If you average it all together, it averages to here. Now, there might not be a single person in this room other than me because I'm perfect. I'm, ser- I'm just kidding. Um, there might not be a single person in that dot right there, right? Um, the median age, you know. I mean, you could take a median age of a group, and it could actually not be anybody's age, you know. Um, but this is where we would reduce down to. Now, if you're going to write a, a complaint on a card to me, what complaint are you going to write? You're not going to write, man, when you average everything together, it doesn't come out to the middle. What you're going to probably write is, hey, it's not far enough this way for my preference, or far enough this way for my preference, or far enough this way for my preference, or far enough this way. And so what will end up happening is I'll get someone, the music's too loud. The very next week, I'll get someone saying the music's not loud enough. You know, the next week, I'll get someone saying, I don't like the worship. The next week, I'll get someone saying, you know, I love the worship. You know, the next week, it'll be, hey, we have too many programs getting in the way. The next week, someone's like, we need more programs, like five women's ministries, you know, and 10 guys, you know, whatever. And what happens is we begin to say, just naturally, because we're here all the time. If this is your house, you're going to begin to start rearranging it the way you like it, right? And so what we're going to begin to do is say, hey, I would like it more if it was this way. I would like it more if it was this way. I would like it more if it was this way. And we begin to take our felt preferences, and that's usually what we complain about. Now, there's a real lesson here. Um, When God goes ballistic... And criticizes things. What does he criticize? It's different than the kinds of things that we criticize. Jesus comes into this temple and goes ballistic. And he says, look, um, it ought to be about people connecting with God. Period. Um, So, you know, volume on music isn't really important. It's what are we singing? What's the theology? What's the heart of the people behind this in singing it? Okay. there's a lot of things we could kind of analyze that way, but what's really at the core of it, not the style, but the substance? And then secondly, um, are we really inviting and welcoming all different walks in here? I love that we're starting a special needs children's program. I love it. I mean, I'm getting really excited because Sarah's a year-long intern that just landed here two weeks ago, and it's kind of the beginning of our, our intern season, and I love interns. Um, so I'm super stoked about that. But I love that she's doing this. Why? Because families that, that kind of don't have a voice and are marginalized because they have a special needs child all of a sudden can come here and be welcome. Hopefully Antioch welcomes in people that are searching. They're like the Gentile. I, I want to find God. I don't know how to find God. Um, if you ever hate the playlist when you walk in, I picked those. Okay? You can come talk to me. But two and a half years ago when we started Antioch, here was what I said to myself. I said, you know what? If I were to invite somebody into my house and turn on my stereo, what they would hear is you 2 Johnny Lang, right? Um, They would hear, that's what they would hear in my house. And there's nowhere in the Bible that says the music playing when people walk in to sit down has to be um, overtly Christian music that makes HarperCollins money. Why can't I play what naturally I would play for people so that they can feel comfortable here? It's not, it's not the main part of the service, the substance. And someone might say, well, if, if we were playing third day, I'd feel a lot more comfortable and I could get into the, the, the opportunity of worshiping so much better. It would be really helpful to me. And I'm saying, you know what? You're right. It probably would. But I'm trying to balance this whole thing out and say, you know what? The most terrifying moment for somebody coming in that just got a divorce or just had somebody die in their family, that just lost their job, that just whatever, and they're walking in. I got an email from someone on the East Coast that found our podcast because her brother committed suicide and she'd been just searching kind of a thing. Um, when that person walks through the door, I want them to feel comfortable, like they can talk to me or other leaders that were approachable, that were authentic, that were normal like Jesus was with his people, okay? You can disagree, but that's why, okay? And if you ever um, have a problem with the the volume of the music, I set that. You come talk to me. And and the playlist, you can come talk to me, okay? But what, what the whole point here is, we will naturally tend to try and make this our comfortable environment. I have a 
four daughters, and, and um, when we have company over, the two daughters especially do this. Now Sarah's doing a lot too, but my daughters will take advantage of any visiting kid in, in our house. I mean, have you ever seen that with kids? Like they want to show them everything first, and then they start saying no, 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 no to everything, and that's mine, and here, you can play with this, and it's the toy that they don't like, you know, and, and everything gets shaded to them because that's their environment. They, they can kind of bully you because that other kid's like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I'm lost. And so my daughters will totally take advantage of that, okay? We do that. We do that. We shouldn't do that. And it's not saying everything needs to be about the Gentiles. Remember that the... The temple here has a place for everybody. This old discussion from the 80s and 90s that I'm so tired of. Is church for believers or is church for seekers? It's completely a wrong question because it's a, a false dichotomy. Church is for people. And people come in all shapes and sizes. And half the people that look like believers are really messed up inside. And half the people that don't look like believers are, are on a better path to really finding God anyways. You know, their motivations are... I mean, give them a month, they're going to be off, off the charts. I mean, with this false dichotomy, and, and churches for people, all shapes and sizes and colors and everything. This is where we come, and if we talk normal enough, we're going to be able to connect with God how? Because the final thing that Jesus brought it back to was, destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. He basically says, there's one thing that makes this whole thing work. I died for everybody, and I now am the place where everybody can come to meet God. What unifies Antioch? What ought to unify Antioch or any other church? Not that we all agree on the music volume. Not that we all agree on some kind of stylistic thing that fits our needs, and we're all kind of the same kind of people, so now we get to find unity around that. You know, we're really into arts. We talked about art last week. There's a lot of people in this church. I mean, they could, they could walk into a, you know, the Mona Lisa and not know it. I mean, this is art deprived, right? That's fine. We don't all have to be cut out of the same mold, right? And the church doesn't have to be built around any one kind of group. And now we find unity because we all have the same style. Church finds unity at the foot of the cross. Our first value, our first commitment at Antioch is that we're Christ-centered. That when, when you really shake it all down, we all come together and find our unity and our ability to, to relate and connect and, and be a church. We find that at the foot of the cross. Jesus is the unifying principle. He's where we go to connect with the Father. He's where we go to have our sins forgiven and to be cleansed enough to be able to go to God with a clear conscience boldly knowing that Jesus' righteousness is the righteousness now we get that we get to come and talk to God, right? And that if anyone comes in here, that's what we want to point them to because that's where they're going to be able to find God. And, and man, people that don't have that, they have just a big hole in their life. So the question we should always be asking is, is what's really at the center of this thing? What's at the center of our preaching? Is it gospel-centered, Christ-centered preaching? What's at the center of our worship? What's at the center of our community when we're coming together as communities? Christ there? When we do the book table or ministry fairs that look like a marketplace, is it, is it just obscuring and getting in the way or a, a way to kind of make money or something like that? Or is it actually trying to help put Christ at the center for people? Is it an equipping tool? But the, the question we should be asking is not, is it meeting my needs? But is this place effectively pulling this thing off so Christ is really at the center and we can endure through time? This community can sustain through time as a mature picture of what God designed church to look like. But that's really going to be our witness. This is the healthiest church I've ever seen. We have not had drama in this church since day one. We don't have politics in this church not yet. And the real mark of this church's witness will be, can we sustain that through time? And if we put our own preferences and style to the side and make sure that we keep the substance in the middle, I think we can sustain that through time. I'm being an absolutely amazing witness for all the different kinds of people that God says, come, you can find me.
All of them. So the worship team is going to come up. I'm just going to, I'm going to close this in prayer. Um, and then when we go into this time of worship, I just, one last thing, side note. You are going to be changed into the likeness of Christ, not by sitting here on Sunday mornings listening to preaching. Not by even going to ministry fairs. You're going to be changed into the likeness of Christ to the degree that you're able to get out of the noise, get onto a hilltop on a regular basis, and spend time with God uh, quietly. Um, You can wear all the Nike headbands you want. You're not going to change physically. You've just got to invest yourself into the hard work in the gym. And I just, we need to say this again. Reading your Bible learning it for yourself, letting God speak through it, spending time in prayer, getting away in solitude so you can listen. The hard work of relating and connecting with God and hearing from God, that's the only place where you're really going to be changed. I, I just want to confess that because this church and its leadership is, is wrong-headed if we put ourselves in between you and God and we become a part of the distraction. No intention of doing that. Hopefully this is motivating so that you can go find God and connect that way and let him change you. Let's pray. Father, may you be the center of everything that we do. It's what we mean when we say we want to glorify you. We want to lift you up. We want to magnify your name. We want to raise your reputation. We want to put you at the center where all things come back to you and you're exalted. We just want you to be dominant. And we're just secondary to that. Just let us be transformed through you and by you. Let us not just run around doing religious things and delude ourselves. Please, God, help us. Our faith is weak. It's feeble. Nurture and encourage it. Pray that you'd help this church to be an encouraging and nurturing organization. That the people in the community would would just pour in and help each other grow into Christ-likeness, that we would be found with you. That all of us, every stripe, every kind of person would be found with you. We pray that in Christ's name.